This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Freedom of Information Act might be best known as a way for journalists and public interest groups to get information about the operations of government. But it can also be a tool for companies to get confidential information about their competitors. Safeguarding that information has gotten more complicated in the last few years because the state of the law around the FOIA exemption that applies to things like trade secrets, it's all in flux. Nathan Castellano is a special counsel in the government contracts group at Jenner and Block. He wrote a recent briefing paper about these complications and talked about them with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. FOIA is designed to bring transparency to federal government operations. It does that by allowing any person to request government records. So when a company shares information with the federal government, that information becomes a government record that can then be subject to a FOIA request. And while we often think about this in terms of journalists in the media, the statute really doesn't care who the requester is or their motives. It could be a journalist just the same as it could be your market competitors. So if your company is sharing proprietary or sensitive business information with the federal agency, whether you're sharing it with your customer or your regulator, that information is at risk of being caught up in a FOIA request and released to the public. And that's where FOIA Exemption 4 comes into play. Right? FOIA starts by giving the public a broad right to request records, but it doesn't give the public a right to everything. You can't get sensitive national security information. You can't get law enforcement records. You can't get veteran health records. You also can't get, under Exemption 4, proprietary, confidential, commercial information. So to answer the, the question, the reason companies sharing sensitive information with the government need to care about FOIA Exemption 4 is that FOIA Exemption 4 is how companies can protect the information they share with agencies. So when a court issues a decision that strengthens Exemption 4 or weakens it, that has a direct impact on how contractors can protect their confidential information. And this concept that companies can get information under FOIA, that's not just a hypothetical based on the FOIA logs that I've looked at in which journalists are a minority Absolutely. of the requesters. It's It happens every day, right? Yep, that's a it's a legitimate business model. And so let's talk about how Exemption 4 has changed. I think the main movement was the Supreme Court decision in a case called Argus Leader a few years back. And then prior to that, there was the FOIA Improvements Act, which has changed a lot about how Exemption 4 operates. And I think it's still changing in, in litigation that's followed on after that Argus Leader case, right? What's what's still in flux? Yeah, so I think everything is in flux. And it all really the the key point is that Argus Leader decision in 2019. So for several deci- for several decades, most Exemption 4 disputes were handled under constant line of D.C. Circuit precedent, where the main point of dispute is whether the company could show competitive harm. Would releasing this information cause competitive harm? And that's what the case has turned on. You had, factual, you had detailed declarations, you had legal argument, all on that competitive harm issue. The thing is, FOIA Exemption 4, the statutory provision, doesn't say anything about competitive harm. And a few years ago, Exemption 4 case, Argus Leader gets the Supreme Court. The court looks at the statute and says, there is no competitive harm issue here. As long as commercial information is actually confidential, then it must be protected under Exemption 4, regardless of competitive harm. Uh, So this happens in 2019. Everyone has to go back to the drawing board and work through the implications. And we still have a lot of unanswered questions that are bigger than just what was at issue in Argus Leader. And we've got a lot of decisions coming out, digging into these questions and coming up with important opinions that that really matter if you're in a FOIA dispute. So 
I've got, I think four of them kind of teed up of, of just quick little issues at a minimum. You just, you can't assume that everything you knew about FOIA from five years ago still stands. If you're gearing up for a FOIA dispute, you really need to be watching these decisions, thinking strategically and creatively about your positions. Instead of focusing primarily on competitive harm, courts and parties are now more interested in just a general question of confidentiality. How exactly did the company store this information? Who was the information shared with and under what terms? Why did the company expect the government to keep the information confidential once it was shared? These weren't foreign to Exemption 4 litigation before Argus Leader, but now they're really at the center stage and they require the same kind of factual and legal development that you might have given to competitive harm five years ago. There's also a lot of disagreement in the courts over what types of information can constitute commercial information. So before we even get to, is this is this confidential? Is it commercial? The circuits were never perfectly aligned on this point, but the division's becoming a lot more significant. And it's another potentially fact-intensive issue that the parties need to prepare for that might not have gotten as much attention before Argus Leader. And finally, you mentioned the, the FOIA Improvement Act of 2016. At the time, this really wasn't thought of as a big deal because the D.C. Circuit had already required courts to look at competitive harm. And the FOIA Improvement Act was not at issue in Argus Leader because that, that FOIA request happened to be filed before the statute went into effect. But after Argus Leader, the Supreme Court says there is no competitive harm test, yet you have courts looking at the FOIA Improvement Act saying, well, it looks like Congress might have actually codified a competitive harm test through that statute. Courts are all over the place on this. You've got direct division uh, in, in, the, in the various district courts. And so you might have a court, you might come thinking, hey, Argus Leader wiped out the competitive harm test just to have the district court say, no, Congress put it back in in 2016. And Nathan, a lot of the issues that you just teed up for us are, are the kinds of things that lawyers need to think about and worry about once they're at the point where they're involved in FOIA litigation or you know, at risk of getting into FOIA litigation. What can companies do ahead of time to make sure that things don't get to that point or, or, or minimize the risk that information that they don't want getting into a competitor's hands actually gets released by an agency? Yeah. So I think that's the dichotomy there between what the lawyers need to be doing and what the company can do on the front end is really important because with the shift away from competitive harm and toward questions of, is it commercial, is it confidential? The courts are really focusing on things that you can't change during litigation. You can't prepare for that. You really have to prepare before the document is submitted, right? So what companies can do is before they even share information with the government, before you click send on that next document, identify the individuals and teams that are going to be sharing information and train them to understand what they need to be doing. They need to be marking documents the right way, confidential commercial information. They might need to be having certain conversations with agency officials to make sure they're conveying that this information that the company considers it confidential. Companies also, in order to really button down that confidentiality point, make sure they've got their internal policies and procedures ready to show, listen, uh, here are our document access protocols. Only people who access this document are a certain number of, of pre-approved people. All of our employees have general confidentiality obligations. If we're going to share this material with suppliers and vendors, we have an NDA in place. Those are the kind of things that you know, they're really not legal issues. They're just process and confidentiality points that companies can think about in advance to make sure they have all of that in place so that when a FOIA request comes in, they're able to give the agency everything the agency needs 
to withhold the information if that's appropriate. And under the, the law as it stands now, to the extent that we have law that stands now on this issue, how much does it matter or does it matter that the agency gives the vendor who's providing the information some kind of assurance of confidentiality? And have agencies changed their behavior on that front at all, providing more assurances or, or doing more to safeguard that information so that companies feel comfortable submitting it? So this was the big the big question within the first you know six months after Argus Leader was, oh no, is the Supreme Court now requiring that in order to withhold information, you need you know a formal document from the agency saying we agreed to withhold to, to keep this confidential. And luckily, I think that's not how the courts, the Department of Justice, or the agencies have gone about this. Mm-hmm. The Department of Justice issued some uh, guidance after the Argus Leader case indicating that you could have implied assurances of confidentiality. Just to to back up a second, the the Supreme Court didn't even actually answer whether or not the assurance was required. They left it open. But in in doing so, they created a question that everyone had to grapple with. You've got some courts, uh, particularly in the D.C. Circuit, that have said they're prohibited by precedent from even imposing that obligation until the Supreme Court actually requires it or the D.C. Circuit does something. So some courts won't even look at it. You have other courts that have been pretty friendly going along with the Department of Justice guidance and agreeing that you can have implied assurances of confidentiality. So the courts aren't looking for a really you know, strict piece of paper saying, yes, we agree to keep this confidential. Um, they're willing to read it into the, the context of the exchanges. So if you're exchanging emails with an agency and you're marking things as confidential and you're warning them, hey, we consider this confidential, you might not even need that express assurance to still be covered. It's There's a question of comfort uh, at the time of submission of what you're comfortable with, but the, the, the decisions we've seen so far at least have been willing to really look and say, given the totality of the circumstances, was it fairly implied that the agency would keep it confidential? This may be a silly question, but since there is a, a split in the courts right now, does it matter what circuit you're in, which rules you need to be thinking about, or which legal rubric applies to you and your company? Yes, I think that's that's another one of the major implications that's come back in the couple in the past couple of years. You know, ten years ago, you might have just looked at DC Circuit precedent and felt like if you knew the DC Circuit rules, you could pretty much be fine anywhere. Now you're really seeing the differences in the um, in the circuits come up, and you're seeing it mostly in in the issue of what is commercial. The DC Circuit courts have been more willing to recognize information as commercial, even when it's more limited, for example, to compliance information, because recognizing that in highly regulated industries, compliance information is commercially valuable. In other circuits, like the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit, been a little less willing to to take that expansive view. It's not to say that they would or wouldn't protect that information, but it's not quite as as clear. And on, on issues like whether the FOIA Improvement Act does require a showing of competitive harm, um, whether or not what the standard is for that implied or express assurance of confidentiality. I think it, it really does matter what circuit you're in. And you really do have to think, you know, where is this litigation going to be filed? Where, the FOIA, where is the FOIA request are going to, are they going to file? And if it's a reverse FOIA case where you're trying to stop an agency from releasing your information, where are you best positioned to file? So forum shopping to the extent it hasn't been a, huge part of FOIA litigation in the past, I think really will be in the next couple of years. 
Nathan Castellano is special counsel in the government contracts group at Jenner and Block. We'll post this interview plus a link to his paper discussing those nuances of FOIA Exemption 4 at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
you get everything accomplished because you know that's what everybody's looking for the goals the metrics etc but i think as you mature and you go along you start to to your point you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young you know whenever you're a young adult and you say you know i think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line and so over time i really began to i i think see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.